Good morning. Um, before we start our reading, we'll just remember where we've been, which is that the Israelites have conquered Jericho, but then been defeated at Ai. From Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard, that jo- heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went to make ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. This is the word of the Lord. May have a seat. It's good to be with you here on Sunday as always. As you go to your seat, let us pray that God would help us to understand his word this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who have gathered here this morning to worship you. Pray that, Holy Spirit, you would uh, help us to understand your good word, uh, that you would uh, take your living and active word, apply it to our hearts, help us to become more and more like Jesus Christ, help us to have our affections for Jesus Christ stirred all the more through the reading and through the preaching and through the understanding of your word. We submit all that we are and all that we have to you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our time today. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. A couple of things before we start. Just want to let you guys know uh, what to be praying for. There's several in our body, maybe even some of you, and I've talked to a few of you, have been sick recently, and we just have just a greater percentage of illness going through our body and I think maybe just our community. And so I want to be mindful of illness as uh, that can come in waves throughout the year, but it seems like we're in one of these waves where there's more illness. So let's be praying for our brothers and sisters in that respect. And then I want to let you guys know, a lot of you already know this, but that uh, Jason and Jessica Small had baby Elijah this week. So praise God for new life. And uh, Elijah's doing really well and with big brother Caleb. And so we just want to continue to lift up the Small family uh, as they adjust to life as a family of four. So As we get back into the book of Joshua, I want to recall with you, now um, this is not an endorsement at all, but some of you might be familiar with a very popular TV show that was actually a streaming show several years ago. I'm not going to name the name of it, only because, again, it's not an endorsement, but as I describe the plot of the show, many of you are going to know what I'm talking about, okay? It's a mild-mannered high school chemistry teacher, married with a family, some of you already know. I heard Stephanie laugh. You know, you've watched this show. (laughs) 
So he's a mild-mannered chemistry teacher, married with a family, but he turns to a life of crime. And the reason he turns to a life of crime is that he's been diagnosed with stage three lung cancer. And so in that diagnosis, maybe in a not so innocent desire to provide for his family because he doesn't make a lot of money as a teacher, he turns to producing and distributing meth in order to have more money for his family, presumably because he knows that after uh, not too much longer he is going to die. So the entire series shows this man uh, who starts off as a, again, this rather innocent chemistry teacher, it shows him devolving more and more into this life of crime, into this underbelly of the, the crime world of drugs. And so, again, what started as a desire to care for his family has led to more and more significant consequences for him and his family, in fact. Now, I was reading a, a, reading a little uh, blurb from the creator of this television series, and he said, the creator of this TV series said, the larger lesson of the show is, quote, actions have consequences. Actions have consequences. And so in the story that we're going to dig in today here in Joshua chapter 9, we're going to see several different ways that actions have many ways, unintended consequences. Actions that have unintended consequences both uh, in the lives of the Israelites and in the lives of this group called the Gibeonites that we just heard about. Uh, The Gibeonites being uh, residents of the land of Canaan. And so, uh, yes, seeing that actions do have consequences. So again, it's great to be back in the book of Joshua. It's been a, a few weeks since we've been in Joshua. So just by means of catching us up and reminding us of where we've been up until this point, uh, we've been saying all throughout the book of Joshua that God is loyal uh, to his word. God has been loyal to the people of Israel. Uh, and, and so what we have said is that this reality that God is loyal to his word actually transforms us. It allows us to become people of truth, hope, and steadfastness because God's promises never fail. Uh, and so where, where have we been up until this point? Well, if we go even further back from Joshua to understand the book of Joshua, we have to remember uh, that Abraham, back in Genesis 12, was given a promise by God. God says that he will make Israel into a great nation from the seed of Abraham, Abraham that he will have a son. And in fact, his descendants will uh, number as the sand on the seashore and the stars and the skies. And we might remember that. We're also told that Israel will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then we fast forward a little bit to the Exodus, and we remember this story as Moses leads uh, uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt, but we see that that first generation of Israelites dies in the wilderness. They die in unbelief. They die because they do not believe that God will keep his promises. And so the book of Joshua picks up right after that. Now we're looking at the second generation of Israelites. And so the book of Joshua is where the people have now been on the precipice of the Jordan River. And then in Joshua, they actually cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And this is the land that God has also promised his people long ago that he would give them. 
And so we see God has raised up Joshua in, uh, in succession of Moses, uh, and he has told the people that he is going to deliver this land over to them as they are called to obey everything he has commanded. He has told them to set to destruction the peoples of this land. And up to this point, in terms of obedience, we have seen some mixed results. So if you remember, we, we see a great victory at Jericho in chapter 6. But then, as Kate mentioned, we, we remember that in chapter 7, that Israel fails to take the city of Ai because of the sin of an Israelite named Achan. We talked a lot about Achan and his sin in chapter 7. Now, after Achan is killed and the sin is put away, God's anger is relented and Ai, after that, is conquered by Israel in chapter 8. And at the end of chapter 8, the last time we were in the book of Joshua, we saw that there was a covenant renewal ceremony. It was a high watermark, a high point in this story. And now we arrive to today's text, and we see that Israel has an encounter with these Gibeonites. Okay? that catches us up. Let me give you the main idea of our message this morning. Again, as Chris mentioned, if you picked up an announcement sheet, the sermon notes are on the other side of that, and you'll see the main idea on the sheet of paper, which is this. Despite our sin and ignorance, God's plan of salvation won't be thwarted. Despite our sin, despite our finitude, our ignorance, God's plan of salvation won't be thwarted. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to take a look at this text and find three different sins. There are three sins in particular and how they each brought unintended consequences. Remember, actions have consequences. But I want us to see that none of what happens in Joshua chapter 9, in fact, none of anything that happens in God's word or in our lives is throwing off God. God won't be thwarted. He will continue to work, even in the consequences, to work out his plan for his people in this place. So we're going to look at three different sins and the three different consequences. And the three are uh, Achan's disobedience, Israel's dereliction, and the Gibeonites' deception. Achan's disobedience, Israel's dereliction, and the Gibeonites' deception. Now, looking at uh, the first two verses here in chapter 9, I want to begin with that. Kate just read this over us, but I want to show from just these first two verses in chapter 9 that Achan's disobedience unifies the enemy. His disobedience unifies the enemy. Now, how in the world do I get that? We don't even see Achan's name in the first two chapters, or first two verses of chapter 9. Achan is dead. We, we just recalled that from chapter 7 that he was killed along with his family because of his sin. Uh, but yet what we find here at the opening of chapter 9 is that all these various enemy kings in the land have now unified. They've come together to fight Joshua and Israel. What's interesting is that if, if you've been tracking with us here in the book of Joshua, if you remember, in fact, if you want to, just flip back a few pages to the beginning of chapter 5, and you'll notice that the start of chapter 5 and the start of chapter 9, very similar. But there's a big difference. 
If you look at chapter 5, you remember that as the enemy kings have heard of what God has done and what the people of Israel have done, their hearts melt with fear. Do you remember that? that we, we've talked a lot about the fact that uh, all throughout the book of Joshua, we hear of the enemy's hearts melting because of what God has done. But what do we see in this text? Similar language, the kings have heard, they know what's going on, but instead of their hearts melting, their hearts are hardened, and now they're resolved to be united to attack Israel. Why? Well, the reason, I, I firmly believe the reason is they know that Israel's vulnerable because of their defeat at Ai. They've, they've heard the reports that Israel initially was defeated at Ai. And why was Israel defeated? As you, as you recall, as we walked through chapter 7, the reason is Achan took the things that God told him not to take. His disobedience has led to these unintended consequences now as we open up chapter 9. Unintended consequences of sin, even after the sin has been dealt with. Because remember, I just said, and if we go back and look at the very end of chapter 7, God's anger has been removed. He has turned from his holy anger. He has forgiven. The sin has been dealt with. Achan has been killed. And yet, there are still ongoing consequences and byproducts of Achan's sin against the Lord. And one of those that we see here in chapter 9 is that now, instead of the enemy kings Perhaps they would, have, they would have surrendered, knowing that uh, Israel is on the move. They've uh, defeated everyone in Jericho. Uh, they've defeated everyone in Ai. And it's very possible, we don't know, of course, that the enemy kings could have said, we surrender. But instead, they know that Israel has a, weak, has a weakness. Israel has a weakness. I wonder if, if you've experienced anything like this before. I know I have, where I have sinned, I have been forgiven, as we all are in Jesus Christ. We just heard that from Andrew. Your sin has been dealt with on the cross. My sin has been dealt with on the cross. So even though we are forgiven for our disobedience, we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're not punished we're not punished because Jesus has taken our punishment for us. He has been a propitiation for our sins. So we are walking in freedom and forgiveness. Everything that we talked about, hopefully we talk about every Sunday, but certainly we talked about last Sunday on Easter, Resurrection Day. There is freedom that we walk in. And yet, and yet, sometimes there are significant ongoing consequences for our sin. Is there not? There might be Relational consequences might be the loss of a friendship, might be estrangement from a family member, might be consequences that relate to your job. There are some ways and some instances where people have sinned, they're forgiven fully and freely, and yet the consequence for that sin is that they have lost their job. It might be a physical consequence, maybe it's a permanent injury. Some of us have also known, maybe it's even been us, that where we have repented over sin and yet the consequences uh, are legal, and that we have to face maybe even jail time because of the sin that we have committed. 
Maybe we have understood the consequences of sin because we've been sinned against. And so there's a temptation in the midst of this to believe that you're not forgiven because of the ongoing consequences of your sin. I feel like the, I feel like the enemy is always desiring to confuse us and, and really to make those waters murky, really to make us think that we're not forgiven if we're facing consequences for our sin. But God never stops working. God never stops working in our ongoing consequences. There may be ongoing consequences for your sin, but there is the ongoing saving work of Jesus Christ. He's working in these things in our lives. And so I hope that this is a comfort for us today. There might be some of you right now who are in the midst of a season very similar to this. You might be walking through very real, very tender, very present consequences because of your sin. And I want you to remember that God forgives you, that in Christ you are forgiven. He is faithful to forgive, but he's also faithful to discipline us. We read that among other places in Hebrews 12, that as a good father disciplines his children, so God disciplines us because he loves us. He loves us. He never stops working for us. And so as we consider from Galatians 6 just a minute ago that Andrew read over us, as we bear one another's burdens, that's part of burden bearing with one another, is that we recognize the real, the real hardships and the real difficulties that come from sin, that we live in, a, in the midst of great fallenness. And even in our own lives where we have walked and repented and walking in a new direction that there are times when God allows for consequences for our sins. And what an occasion for us to be the body of God, to comfort one another in that reality, to lift one another up when we are struggling in this way. What we're going to see uh, in this particular story, so again, in, in uh, the first two verses of chapter 9, we do see that uh, the people against God's people, the, the, the kings of all these uh, different cities and, and regions in the land of Canaan, we are going to see in the next few chapters after chapter 9 that God is not thwarted by this. That even though Achan has sinned and now we're seeing the consequences of his sin, God's plan of salvation is not thwarted. We'll talk more about that next week. In our passage today, another consequence for sin comes in the next few verses. And we're going to see that Israel's dereliction, their dereliction of duty, frustrates the people of God. Let's, let's see what this story has for us. Starting in verse 3, and we just heard this from Kate, we read about the inhabitants of Gibeon. Uh, so Gibeon is a city in the land of Canaan. Uh, and so we see that the Gibeonites make up this grand story. They make up a story about being from a distant country. So they want to uh, pretend that they don't live in the land, but that they're from far away. But the reality is they were the enemy. The Gibeonites were in the land, and they were to be devoted to destruction by God's people. God has commanded this. But the Gibeonites go through this ruse and so we heard they, they make their clothes look like 
they're worn out, uh, their bread is dry and crusty, and they want it to make it seem as, a, as if they have traveled from a long distance from another land far away, and then we read that they want to make a covenant with Israel, a covenant of peace. Now, as we keep reading, immediately what we're going to see is that the men of Israel, in particular Joshua, is immediately skeptical, as he should be, right? Because all of a sudden, here are these group of people, and we, the question that Joshua asks is, uh, who are you? Uh, what are you doing? Uh, why are you traveling through this region? And so immediately, uh, Joshua is skeptical. He's asking the right questions. He's basically saying, who the heck are you guys? But the Gibeonites doubled down. Uh, that they continue to kind of walk in this ongoing lie. So if you want to pick up with me in verse 12, let me read verses 12 through 15. It says this, Here is our bread. The Gibeonites are speaking now to Joshua. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours, worn out from the very long journey, Verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the author of Joshua makes very clear here in verse 14 that the leaders of Israel have sinned because they have not asked the counsel of the Lord before making this covenant so this is a dereliction of duty. This was not supposed to happen. They were clearly confused and skeptical, wondering who these people are, wondering if these Gibeonites, uh, what they were saying was true, and what they were supposed to do was seek the Lord. What they were supposed to do was seek the Lord's wisdom, and they failed to do so. And so, here is yet again... In the book of Joshua, another Genesis 3 fall story, where the people of God have failed to obey God. And they're failing to obey God right after they renew the covenant at the end of chapter 8. I just mentioned that. What a high water mark for the people of God. They've all gathered together, they've all covenanted together, and then they fall. Isn't this so like life? Right after the high highs, we, we're so prone to wander. We're so prone to go out on our own. How desperately do you and I need wisdom from above? And yet, how so often do we fail to seek the Lord and his wisdom? Israel's dereliction is foolishness. It's foolishness, but they could have had God's wisdom if they would have just asked God's wisdom would have prevented this action of making a covenant with the enemy. Now, here's something really neat. I would encourage you to look at this later on as you do Bible study, and maybe even this week as we have this story fresh on our mind. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 3 this week, you're going to read about King Solomon. And many of you know that King Solomon, known for his wisdom, and what does he ask of the Lord instead of things and, and fame and uh, riches? In 1 Kings 3, he asks God for wisdom. 
And God is pleased that King Solomon asked for wisdom. Now, why in the world am I bringing up 1 Kings 3? Where does that happen? The city of Gibeon. That Solomon would ask wisdom from above in a city that right now in Joshua 9, Gibeon associated with deception and Israel's lack of wisdom. So what we see is that God will redeem. God will redeem in his time and in his way. That Solomon, known for his wisdom, and that Jesus Christ, the greater Solomon, ultimately known for wisdom, where the people of God fall for this ruse and fail to ask God for wisdom in Joshua 9, we know that Jesus was never duped. That Jesus was always steadfast to pray and ask his father for wisdom. Now, if Joshua had actually made a covenant with a people that really were from a faraway land, if what these people were saying were actually true, that it would have been allowed. And actually, if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we read that God said that peace could be made with cities where the residents are coming from far away, but not in the land of Canaan. Does that make sense? So that was allowed. It was allowed that if people were indeed coming from far away, that the people of Israel could make peace with them. But as it is, Israel has been duped. And we can read more about that. Let's keep reading. Here's verse 16. I'm going to read through verse 21. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, Uh uh-oh, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against their leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Israel's dereliction frustrates the people. Do you see that? The decision that the leaders make to covenant with the people that were their enemy neighbors instead of a people from far away, do you see what it does? It's led to murmuring and grumbling from the congregation. So here again is an unintended consequence of sin. Not seeking God's wisdom, making a covenant with the enemy nation, The hearts of the people now are openly questioning the leadership of Israel. In fact, this is the first time that this word murmur shows up since the first generation murmured and grumbled in the wilderness. And so we're supposed to read this and immediately have red flags going off. We should read this and immediately go, oh no, oh no. That the leaders of, of Israel, did Joshua and the leaders, when they made this covenant, did they, did they think that this was going to happen? Did they think that the people of Israel were going to grumble and murmur? They, they of course, didn't. 
They, they just had no idea because they sinned and not sought wisdom from God, but now they've made this covenant, and the result is the people are frustrated. And what this is going to show, because grumbling has returned to the people of God, is that Israel, once again, has this propensity to not seek God. Israel, once again, as we move forward through the rest of Joshua, and especially as we get to the book of Judges and beyond, we're going to continue to see that Israel just doesn't trust their leadership, that Israel is wanting to go out on their own, and they go further and further into disobedience and chaos. Now, if, if God's Bible, if our scripture ended with the book of Joshua, then this would be incredibly heartbreaking, right? This would be if, if the, the Bible ended in Joshua and that the whole point of, of the Bible was to get to this particular land in Canaan, uh, this particular piece of land in the Middle East, and that was the end, and then this would be a really sad ending to this book, but we know it's not. We know that this is pointing to something beyond itself, that it's not about a particular piece of land in the Middle East, but it's pointing us to a heavenly reality. And so praise be to God that the story is not over. But as we read the rest of the New Testament, we will see over and over again this same thing play out. That the leaders don't seek God, and the people of God grumble and murmur, and further and further chaos ensues. Finally, let's look at the, the Gibeonites. want to think more about who these people are. Uh, the Gibeonites' deception brings blessing out of cursing. That's the third point. The Gibeonites' deception brings blessing out of cursing. Let me, let me read the rest of this chapter beginning in verse 22. This is the conclusion of the story. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying that we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all of the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to us, to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. If you ever wanted to know what self-preservation looks like, here's a very good picture of it. This is what self-preservation will do to people. They'll say anything or do anything to save their skin. That's exactly what the Gibeonites are doing here. Somehow the Gibeonites know that God's word says that they were not to make peace with anyone in the land of Canaan, but that they could make peace from people that were far away. And so they lied to Joshua and Israel so that they would not be destroyed. The other thing that it's very clear that the Gibeonites are aware of is that they know that if God's people make a covenant with them, that God takes covenants very seriously. And that in all likelihood, Israel would keep this covenant 
that Israel would honor this covenant even though it was made under false pretenses. But what we do see in this part of the text is that Joshua does say that they are cursed. Do you see that? He said, you are cursed for what you have done. And the curse is that they will only be servants. They'll be, uh, you see this phrase over and over again, cutters of wood, drawers of water for the house of God. Now, you probably have a lot of questions And I wish we had more time this morning. There's so much here and a lot of uh, great questions about what all of this means as we try to understand the story. This, This is a complicated story. But this actually captures so beautifully the complications of our own lives, does it not? That we live complex lives, that we don't live lives that are neat and tidy and fit into a box perfectly, that we live lives that have mixed motives in them, that we live lives where we fully don't understand what's going on. So maybe more than any other story in the book of Joshua, this one requires theological humility. This one requires a lot of humility on our part. The biggest question that I have, at least, from this text is, what do we make of the Gibeonites? What do we make of them? Some, some, as I've been studying this text this week, some have suggested that they have faith in God like Rahab. Maybe even you thought of Rahab as you read this story. And there's a lot of similarities. I appreciate that view that there, are, uh, that there are similarities between the Gibeonites who are also part of the land of Canaan and they are also uh, wanting to make sure that they are not killed like Rahab. But I, I actually, even though I appreciate that, I actually think what's going on here is that the Gibeonites are incredibly shrewd and the only way that they saw to not be killed is to lie. But I only think that they are involved in wanting to preserve their physical lives. Even though they talk about God, even though they say that uh, they heard about what your Lord, the Lord your God has done, I think that they are just trying not to die. That they are wanting to preserve themselves. And we see what happens, and so we have to ask the question, is this good news for the Gibeonites? Is it? Well, in one sense, we read that they're cursed, right? They are, these are accursed people. What do we make of that? Again, I think that the Gibeonites were only worried about physically not dying. But I believe that the consequence for their sin, I believe that the greater consequence for their sin was that blessing came out of cursing. But what do I mean by that? Whether, whether or not they, they understood what was happening in this moment, that they were physically spared, I don't know if they understood what was about to happen, that as they became servants of God's temple, that they would physically, and in some ways even spiritually, be assimilated into the life of Israel. What a strange way for Israel to be a blessing to the nations, right? Right? We talked about that being part of the promise to Abraham, and we read a story like this, and we think, what a strange way that God's blessing can come to these people. Yeah, they were cursed. They were cursed to be servants in the temple of the Lord, 
But it's in that service in the temple that they were drawn closer to Yahweh. You might even think that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The Gibeonites suddenly find themselves amongst God's people serving in God's temple. If we had more time, we could, we could actually look through several parts of the Old Testament and find references to this covenant in Joshua 9. The Gibeonites would be protected by Israel over and over again for generations to come. And even if you get to the book of Nehemiah, we will see that when Israel returns from exile, in that story, Israel returns from the Babylonian exile, begins to rebuild the walls and the temple in Jerusalem, and guess who is shoulder to shoulder with the Jews rebuilding the temple? The Gibeonites. Now, do I think that these Gibeonites in chapter 9 know that their great, 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 great grandchildren would be rebuilding the temple with the people of God? I don't think that they did. I don't think they had any inkling that this would be the reality, that they would have this legacy in Israel's history of worship. But God did. God did. Maybe, maybe you're you're reading the story, and like me this week, you're like, well, that's just not right. These people lied. These are the enemies. They lied. Whatever rises up in reading the story, and, and however confusing it might be, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the Gibeonites, despite their deception, end up closer to the kingdom of God. They're close. They've been brought in. He brings blessing out of a curse. Friends, God can use our self-preservation, our self-interested fear to draw us closer to him, to bring us into meaningful relationship. Even in their sin, even in their clear sin of self-preservation and deception, Joshua delivers the Gibeonites from death. Joshua delivers from death. And in our sin, our Joshua, Jesus, delivers us from our sin. Did the Gibeonites deserve this kind of mercy? Did these, these people deserve this? They lied. No more than you and I. Did they deserve mercy? No more than you and I, friends. The gospel is about covenantal grace. God has saved us while yet we were sinners through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and by his blood we are saved. Are God's purposes to bring truth out of lies, blessing out of cursing, light out of darkness? Are any of those things thwarted in this chapter? Are any of those things thwarted in the deception, in the lack of wisdom? No. God won't be thwarted. This is who God is. He's the one who wishes that no one would perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it sure seems now, it's not clear from this text, but it, to me, sure seems more possible now that the Gibeonites are finding themselves in the most beneficial consequence to their sin. They are finding themselves dwelling in the house of the Lord with his people. 
as we close this morning, <clears throat> I, I was praying this week, uh, what, what could be a, a helpful application for us in this story? There's a lot here. I think the, the, the bigger theme of that our consequences or that actions have consequences certainly is true. What we said earlier about the fact that many of us are walking through consequences to and from our sin, even now, that that's not a mark of not being forgiven in God, but it may be a mark of his discipline to us, but that even in our forgiveness, consequences for sin can still remain. But then I also wonder, from this text, if there's another application for us. Now, we live in a, a different era uh, we do not live in this particular era in redemptive history in Joshua 9. So again, we've said this a few times, but today we have not been, as the people of God, we have not been called uh, to take up swords and destroy enemy cities. That's not what we have been called to do. But I do wonder if we have stopped and considered the, the potential dangers of self-preservation in the other direction. Have we thought about self-preservation in the other direction. And what do I mean by that? Well, in this passage, as we've talked about, the, the, people, the, the people of God were deceived by the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites had this motivation of self-preservation, right? They wanted to save their skin. They were in great fear that they were going to die. And so out of this self-preservation, they lied. The result was, though, they got caught up in an unexpected way into worshiping with God's people in God's court. What about if the shoe is on the other foot? What do we do today as believers? What do we do as the people of God when we fear the world? What do we do when we fear the secular culture around us? Maybe we don't we don't fear quite like this. We don't fear uh, that when we leave this place today that someone is actually going to kill us, although that is not out of the question. But maybe that's not our fear. Maybe we're not fearing that we'll be physically killed, but we are fearing that we're going to be canceled. We're fearing that we're going to lose our job. We fear that we're going to be shunned. We fear that we're going to lose friendships. What are, what are the dangers of the sin of self-preservation for us? Are we more susceptible to compromise with our culture, to make a deal, to make a covenant? And if that is what we are prone to do, if we are tempted out of self-preservation to make peace with the world, before we know it, we might get caught up in our worship of what the world worships. That could be a consequence of that sin for us. That before we know it, in ways that we would have never predicted, that we're caught up in idol worship of the world. And so the lesson might be this. Be careful with who you make a deal with because you never know where it could lead. Beware. Despite all this, God won't be thwarted, friends. God won't be thwarted. Despite our sin, despite our ignorance, despite our lack of wisdom, he is able to bring about his will. Even in the midst of all of our unintended consequences, all of our actions, some of those consequences negative, some of them may be positive, no matter what, God is working in incredible ways 
in our lives and in the lives around us. And so what ultimately seemed like a win for evil on the cross, when Jesus became a curse, when Jesus was cursed hanging from a tree, God brought blessing to all who are brought into his covenant of grace. And so may that be something we rejoice in this morning. Let us pray. Father, we do. We, we see that uh, out of cursing, specifically out of the cursing of your son on the cross, came great blessing. And as we are identified in Christ, as we have given our lives over to him, as we are found in him, united to him, in his death and in his resurrection, we are thankful that the punishment that we deserve, the curse that was rightly ours, has been taken on by our good Savior Jesus. And by it, we are saved. We are delivered. We are the ones that are wanting to preserve our lives. We are the ones that are tempted to compromise with the world and make deals with the enemy to save our skin. Will you help us? Will you forgive us when we do that? May we be warned that when we do that, we, we move farther and farther away from you. Help us to be drawn in by your good covenant of grace, the new covenant in Christ's blood, that we are drawn in and that we were all deceivers, liars. It was at that time you died for us. And so we thank you. Father, we pray that we uh, would seek you and your wisdom in all things. We know that we are so prone not to, that we look around and even when we're confused and even when we're not sure of the way to go, that we so often do not pray and ask for direction and discernment and wisdom. May we be a people that repent of that and turn to you. We need you. We need your wisdom. We cannot work and walk and go through this life without it. So will you help us? And then, Father, I pray for uh, extra uh, measure of grace and mercy for those of us who are walking through particular consequences from our sins, from our actions. And we know and help, us to remind, help to remind us all the more that we are forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ, that we will not be punished like Christ was in death and in, in being removed from your presence, but that we will be with you forever. But yet, in this life, the consequences of sin remain, and sometimes they sting. Sometimes they're really hard. So I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in the midst of something like that. Will you help us to bear one another's burdens and come alongside one another if that's true? And trust you with our entire lives, knowing that you're working in and through the consequences of our sins. And we love you. Thank you for this time to worship you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.